first 14 verses or so, and then we'll jump in. Ephesians 1, starting at the beginning. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of of his glory. So when we were in verses 1 and 2, we examined the calling of the Apostle Paul. We did so in order to have an understanding of the authority by which Paul delivers to us this letter to the Ephesians. Um, we saw in Acts 9 that Paul, who was a murderer of Christians, the chief murderer of God's people, was traveling to Damascus when he was thrown to the ground and Christ himself appeared to him and said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And there were two uh, funny observations I wanted to make there that um, people often sort of misunderstand about Paul. His name did not change, right? It, it tells us Paul also called Saul. And then you might be familiar with a famous painting um, of the conversion of Paul where he is thrown off of his horse. Uh, Acts does not tell us that Paul was riding a horse. Um, but what we were really looking to do there was to understand how Paul received the word that he received and how Paul delivered it to us. Um, he was appointed an apostle by Christ himself. And Paul tells us uh, in 2 Timothy 3 um, that all scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable for teaching and for correcting and rebuking and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And so what we see in scripture is a sort of paradigm of the ways scripture teaches us. Um, it's a positive, negative, and a doctrinal, practical thing here. We have teaching where Scripture teaches us what we ought to believe. It teaches us things about God, and it teaches us things about Christ. But Scripture also corrects our errors, does it not? Right? The first chapter of Galatians, we see one such error corrected. Um, Paul describes the circumcision party and how there were those who had faith in their circumcision and in their good works. And he asked them, how have they been so bewitched? And scripture also tells us how we should live our lives, right? It tells us how we should relate to one another, what we should do. And scripture tells us what we should not do. It tells us what is right and it tells us what is wrong. But the important thing I want you to understand about scripture is that all scripture is breathed out by God. Now, there are Bibles out there that have some of the letters in red. And there are churches and teachers who believe that those red letters, which are those words that were verbally given to us from Christ, are more important than the black ones. Now, I'm not going to tell you to throw away your red letter Bibles. Um, 
but we should understand that this letter to the Ephesians that is written in black in most Bibles is given to us with the same divine and sovereign authority as those red letters, those words spoken by Christ. So just as Christ instructed his disciples and just as Christ instructed the crowds, Paul instructs the church with the same authority. Now it's important to understand the audience of this letter, who Paul is writing to. Paul is writing to the church, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And it is in that context and through that lens that we have to understand this letter and really the whole New Testament. Those who are not in the church are not the audience of this letter. Now, to be clear, those who are not in the church, those who are not in the faith, should be the objects of our evangelism, right? The gospel is to be proclaimed to all people indiscriminately. But to understand theology and right practice is to be in the church, is to be assembled with the saints. So we will read this letter through that lens in the context of the gathering of the local church. In verse 3, Paul begins by extolling God. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in one sense, that is a declaration of praise for God. But in another sense, it teaches us something about how God relates to us. Our faith, our good works, The things that we do in faith, they are pleasing to him. They bring him joy. God is pleased when his people love, is he not? And in that sense, we might say that God the Father is blessed as long as we understand that those good works that we do have earned us nothing. The affection of the Father, the blessings of the Father are earned for us by Christ and his righteousness, by Christ and his work in cleansing us, his people. His obedience in his life and his obedience to death on the cross. God is blessed. And God has blessed us in Christ. Right? With salvation, we have been blessed in Christ for his work on the cross. And with every spiritual blessing, Paul tells us, we have been blessed. So not just that we have been saved, we've been taken out of darkness, but every blessing found in Scripture is ours through faith in Christ. Now that is not to say that we will not struggle. It's not to say that we will not have trials and temptations But through the grace that is found in Christ, we may rest when those things come around. We can rest. We have peace and comfort and joy in the grace of God found in Christ Jesus. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, we're going to get into verse 4. And what we're going to see here in verse 4 is the center of of the rest of the letter, the center of really the testimony of the New Testament. We're going to spend all of our time today in verse 4, and we're going to find that as we read through the next 10 verses, 5 through 14, that Paul is really saying the same thing over and over again in different ways. So while today we will only be in verse 4, I think our pace will pick up a bit as we get through the rest of the first half of chapter 1. Paul tells us that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So today's message and the rest of verses 5 through 14 are going to be heavily theological in nature. We are going to explore 
the doctrine of God. We're going to explore the doctrine of salvation. And Paul really doesn't begin practical instruction for the church in terms of how we relate to one another until verse 15. Um, and so we're going to be heavily theological. We're going to reinforce the gospel of our hope, the foundation of our faith, because that's how Paul begins this letter. Um, and I think this will be good. It, I think it'll complement the, the practical teaching from Timothy that James is going through on all the other Sundays. And so in verse 4, Paul lays out the center, the theme, and the point of the rest of the letter and the hope that we have. God's decree of election sits at the center, the beginning, and the end of redemptive history. So we need to understand this word chose, even as he chose us. We need to understand what it means, where it comes from, and what it says about God. And to do so, we need to examine the nature of God himself. We need to explore how God relates to his creation. This word chose tells us that God has made an active, a conscious, a deliberate, a free, and an uncompelled choice of some kind. And to contrast that, I'm going to give you a vocabulary word for today if you're taking notes. That is the, the word theistic mutualism. That'll be the, the biggest word you get today, I think. Theistic mutualism is this idea that there is some give and take between us and God. That we have something to offer him. And what we're going to see today is that it is not the case this idea of theistic mutualism that we bring something to the table of redemption is unbiblical. So this understanding of the word choose is rooted in understanding God's nature, in particular his immutability. What that means is that God does not change. We have to understand that God's nature never changes. To do that, we're going to go to the Old Testament. Turns with, turn with me to Numbers, chapter 23. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Numbers, chapter 23. We're going to begin in verse 13, and what we're really looking for here is the word of the Lord spoken to Balaam. We're going to start in verse 13. And Balak said to him, Please come with me to another place from which you may see them. You shall see only a fraction of them and shall not see them all. Then curse them for me from there. And he took him to the field of Zophim, to the top of Pisgah, and built seven altars and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Balaam said to Balak, Stand here beside your burnt offering while I meet with the Lord over there. And the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus shall you speak. He came to him, and behold, he was standing beside his burnt offering, and the princes of Moab with him. Balak said to him, What has the Lord spoken? Balaam took up his discourse and said, Rise, Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Behold, I received a command to bless he has blessed, and I cannot revoke it. He has not beheld the misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them, and sh the shout of a king is among them. So Balaam delivers this word of the Lord given to him directly from the mouth of God, and he makes the observation that the work of God cannot be changed. He has blessed, and I cannot revoke it. The work of God cannot be reversed, it cannot be impaired, it cannot be inhibited by men. And this is true for us as well, isn't it? That the work of God in our lives for salvation cannot 
be taken away. We see this in Romans 8. We see this in John 6. All that you have given to me, I will raise them up. I will lose nothing of those you have given me. Now, Balaam tells us something here. He says that the Lord is not a son of man that he may change his mind. When you think of a change of mind, you should think of the word repent. Remember two weeks ago, James hit this pretty hard. This idea of repentance. Repentance is a change of mind. Right? We know from the testimony of Christ and the disciples that repentance, whatever that means, is a feature of true faith. Right? Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so we should not understand this repentance as a change of behavior. Repentance does not mean stop sinning. But it might lead to a change in behavior. Because it is a change of mind. Repentance happens here. It changes the way you view sin. It's a change of mind with respect to the things that we do. So as we read through scripture, there are two types of repentance that we need to understand and keep straight. First, there is evangelical repentance. There's another vocabulary word for you. Evangelical or general repentance. And this is that repentance that is affected by the Holy Spirit in regeneration. At the time of faith, we experience an evangelical repentance wherein our minds are changed with regard to all sin. Right? The lost person, as we understand from Romans 3, 10 through 18, is wicked. I always joke that I can't get through a sermon without referencing Romans 3. Paul tells us that none are good. No, not one. But in regeneration, your mind is changed. Apart from Christ, you love your sin. Apart from Christ, you don't even think sin is that bad. But in conversion, by the power of the Holy Spirit, your mind is changed. You see the things that you do, and you recognize that it is sinful. You recognize your opposition to God. That is repentance. Your mind is changed about who you were and what you did. The evangelical repentance. There's also this idea of particular repentance, right? As we grow and mature in our faith, we repent of particular sins particularly. As we learn, we see things that we do, and we come to understand those things are sinful too. Right? I'm not going to be so naive as to believe that at the moment of your conversion, you immediately recognize all the sins in your lives and are able to put them all to death at once. Right? As you continue to learn and read Scripture, continue to grow closer to Christ, the Holy Spirit will point out things in your lives that you realize, I need to stop doing that. <laughs> those things that you used to do, those things that you now do, you begin to recognize things that really are sinful, that you didn't think were before. And so, as those things are revealed to our hearts, as the Holy Spirit convicts us of these things, we repent. Our mind is changed about these things. And as our mind is changed through the power of the Holy Spirit, we work to change the behavior, right? And it can be a struggle. Our flesh fights against the Spirit, does it not? Until the day when our flesh is finally and forever put to death in the glorification of our bodies, our flesh will fight against us. But our minds have been changed. We have the Spirit of God. We have repented. So this repentance is a change of mind. 
And Balaam tells us that God is not a son of man, that he should change his mind. Now, I want to explore the book of Job a little bit, and it'll be clear enough why we're doing these things in a moment. If you read the book of Job, we have 37 chapters of essentially silence from God. Right, we have a little bit in chapter 1 where Satan, the accuser, has a meeting with God. And God says, if you considered my servant, Job. And what we see is that by the command of God, this Satan, the accuser, he is on God's payroll. He takes command from God. He can do nothing except which God permits him. And God permits him to mess with Job. Takes away everything that he has except his wife, unfortunately. I'm not kidding. Read it. Of all the things that God took away, it was worse for Job to leave his wife. And she tells Job to curse God and die. And then Job has several friends who have nothing good to say. And finally... God speaks. In Job chapter 38, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known. And that's a rhetorical question, right? Who is this? God knows who Job is. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth. Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements, surely you know, or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? I love reading Job 38 through 41 because we have all these rhetorical questions that sort of put us in our place. They help us to understand who we are in relation to God the Father. Have you commanded the morning since its days begun? And caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? So God goes on with these rhetorical questions for four chapters. And finally, in Job 42, Job speaks. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Here we see Job repenting of something. He says, I repent in dust and ashes which tells us that there was no behavior change. Because Job has been sitting naked in the rubble of his home since Job chapter 2. For 40 chapters, Job has been bemoaning the loss of all that he has in dust and ashes. Okay, Job wasn't doing fine and then says, okay, now I'm going to repent. I'm going to, you know, take off all my clothes, put on a sack, and wail on the floor. This is where Job's been the whole time. There's no behavior change in Job. His mind is changed toward the things that have happened. He has repented. He understands that God is sovereign. God is holy. God is in charge. And no decree of God can be thwarted. So the two things I want you to understand here. God does not change his mind. 
and we cannot interfere with what God has decreed. So taking these things together so that we can understand this word chose in Ephesians 1. Nothing that man can do or has ever done or ever will do has any bearing on God's sovereign decree to save his people. The choice of Ephesians 1.4 is God's free and sovereign power to save those he wants. And the reason he chooses to save any particular person has nothing to do with anything he has foreseen concerning that person. If God's decree is conditioned on the choices of man, God's choice is not free. This idea that God is reaching out to us, expecting an exercise of free will from us, strips God of this liberty that he has in saving his people. It strips God of his sovereignty that Paul tells us about in Ephesians 1.4. We're going to explore this further. Paul goes on in Ephesians 1.4, tells us that even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, Paul places God's sovereign election into a temporal relation with us. He tells us when it happened before the foundation of the world. God's sovereign election is given by his free and uncompelled decree before creation. This tells us that God's grace is given freely in Christ because it was determined before we had opportunity to earn it. Luke and Melissa, y'all will appreciate this because you've seen me get, me get fired up about it before. But we see the foolishness of what I call the corridors of time doctrine. That God in his wisdom peered through the corridors of time. And I use that phrase because it's sort of the, the identifying phrase that we always, always see with this doctrine. That somehow God observed those who would chose him, and then he chose them, having seen that they would be appropriate objects for his affection. God does not have to check and make sure that he's loving the right people. There was nothing for God to foresee but the wickedness of our own hearts and his own work in saving us. Paul emphasizes this very same thing in Romans chapter 9 about the particular election of Jacob, not Esau, as the inheritor of the birthright, the father of Israel. And he goes on to explain that this is precisely how God has sovereignly chosen to elect his people. Now, I'm not going to rip Romans 9 out of its context, so I'm going to explain how we get there from Romans 1 through 8. Paul begins Romans 1 by presenting us with a problem that there are wicked people out there, right? And then in Romans 2, he tells us that there are wicked Gentiles and there are also wicked Jews. And he goes back and forth in all of Romans 2 and the first half of Romans 3, identifying that there's really no difference between Jews and Greeks with respect to wickedness. And he tells us in Romans 3, just as it is with the Jew, it is with the Gentile, that none is good, no, not one. And then he continues to explore this absence of a distinction between Jews and Gentiles in Romans 4, 5, 6. He talks about Abraham. He uses God's election of the Jews to show us his election of those who are truly his people, the church, the elect of God. Then in Romans 7, he explores our lack of ability, our inability to do what we want when it comes to pleasing God. Right? Paul tells us, I 
do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I do want to do. And comes to the conclusion in the first part of Romans 8, that those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. It cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Apart from Christ, we are unable to please God. And the solution to this problem we see in Romans 9. Begin in verse 9. For this is what the promise said. He's talking about Jacob and Esau now. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also with Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. He has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. But Paul is telling us here that the salvation that we experience does not depend on us. does not depend on our good works. does not depend on our free will. But it depends on God who has mercy. Now Paul doesn't leave us hanging in Ephesians 1. He tells us where it comes from. right? Because we know that God is just. God can't just save unrighteous people. He can't just forgive unrighteousness, right? Because he is justice, he must judge wickedness. And he promises to, right? Throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Psalms, throughout the New Testament, we see in Revelation, God will judge the wicked. But Paul establishes for us the grounds by which we are judged righteous, despite our wickedness. Even as he chose us it's the words that I skipped, right? We've, said, we've seen, chose us, and we've seen before the foundation of the world. What did I skip in verse 4? Even as he chose us in him. And this in him is the same in Christ of verse 3. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Further proof that our salvation, this elective decree of God is free and sovereign because it depends on not but the work of God himself. It does not depend on man. And Paul proclaims that we are chosen in Christ. And he's telling us something about the nature of our redemption here. Paul is outlining a heavenly transaction, an eternal covenant. A deal that was struck not between God and man, but between God and God. Those who are chosen, those who are in Christ, and those who are in Christ are those whom the Father has given to the Son. Those who are saved are saved on account of the work of Christ. And that work being that he has satisfied the wrath of God on their behalf. So what we're going to call this is, if you're taking notes, another vocabulary word, the covenant of redemption. That there is an eternal covenant between God the Father and God the Son. Now it is not explicit in Scripture. Scripture does not say, there is a covenant made between God the Father and God the Son. 
Wouldn't it be so convenient if our systematic theologies were so clearly explained? But we can observe all the elements of a covenant in Scripture. We can observe that an exchange happens. A deal is made. A work is performed in exchange for a promise, a blessing. That's what a covenant is. God the Father promises to glorify the Son as the bridegroom. By giving him a bride with him, he may enjoy eternal communion. And in exchange, God the Son must do the work to cleanse them so that they may be suitable as a bride and suitable to enjoy the presence of God. So while we don't observe the word covenant in Scripture used to describe specifically this, we observe all of those elements. Okay? Turn to John chapter 17. Everything we need to understand this heavenly covenant is found in John 17. Okay, and the interesting thing here in John 17 is that Jesus makes a demand of the Father. Right, we wouldn't see that in Job, would we? We don't see anyone making demands of God in Job. But here we see God the Son commanding the Father to do something. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So here we have direct evidence of some sort of heavenly transaction that happened. Okay, the God, God the Son is assigned a work to perform. And having performed that work, God, God the Son now demands of the Father what he was promised. There's something else I want to observe here. In verse 2 there in John 17, you have given him authority over all flesh and authority to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Okay? This tells us about the authority that Christ has in the work that he performs. What I want you to understand from this is that this contradicts the idea that the work of Christ is somehow universal in its application. I am sure you have heard it said before that Jesus died for everyone. That Jesus performed a work that made something possible that everyone has an opportunity to grasp. But John 17, Jesus tells us who he has authority over. Who, has, who he has the authority to save. You have given him God the Son, authority to give eternal life to those you have given him. And those who have been given to Christ, Jesus tells us in John 17, starting in verse 6, I've manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you have sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All of mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Remember, with this covenant, we're talking about a work performed by God the Son in exchange for glory and a bride. 
these people that have been given to the Son. Jesus is very clear that this giving is not universal. He is not praying for the world. His work is not done for the world. His work is done for the people who are given to him by the Father, his bride. Remember I said he has to cleanse that bride, right? Because we're wicked. We're unclean, right? Apart from this work of Christ, we saw it in Romans 8, we can do nothing to please God. In Ephesians 5, which we will get to in seven years, Paul describes this work of cleansing. And he does it as an example of how husbands ought to love their wives. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives. If you stop right there, you think, I'm pretty good at that. I can do that. Right? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's a little bit harder, right? How did Christ love the church? How did Christ love his bride? He died. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So this bride of Christ, the elect, God's people, the church, they are all born into the sin of Adam. We are all by nature wicked, guilty. But through the work of Christ, we are presented as holy and righteous. So what we see here is something that Martin Luther called the great exchange. Right? An exchange happened. A changing of accounts happened. First, we have Christ's obedience, his righteousness, is imputed to us. Right? Christ came and lived as a human, with human flesh. And he perfectly obeyed the law of God. And not just the letter of the law, right? Because the Pharisees did that. And so much more. Or at least they claim to. But Christ obeyed perfectly the letter and proper spirit of all of God's law. And in this exchange, in the work of Christ, that righteousness, that obedience is counted to us. Right? Because we can't do it. Right? Even if, you know, from right now on, I live perfectly the rest of my life. I've been guilty for 29 years. I've been transgressing God's law for 29 years. And the law demands death. Because the law demands death, and we cannot just be arbitrarily counted righteous, Christ submits to the judgments of the law on our behalf. Our guilt is imputed to him. This exchange happens. We receive the righteousness of Christ. We are made holy. We are made blameless, not guilty. Because Christ was blameless and not guilty. And our guilt is imputed to Christ and he submits to the judgments of the law. He receives the wrath of God that was due to us. He was beaten. He was nailed to a cross. He bled and he died as the law demanded so that we would be made holy and blameless. And that's the rest of verse 4, isn't it? Back to Ephesians. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. I want you to understand what holiness is and what holiness isn't. 
Holiness just means that we've been set apart for a specific purpose. So our holiness or our sanctification, same word, right? Holy, sanctified, they all come from the same Greek root. Our sanctification, our holiness is found in the giving of the bride to the son. The purpose that us, God's people, have been set apart for is to be the bride of Christ. To be the church, the assembly, the gathering. To be set apart to enjoy eternal communion with him. So we are washed clean by the blood of Christ, having been made suitable as a bride. We are given to Christ. This is our sanctification. And this is what scripture is talking about when it says sanctification. We're set apart for the particular purpose of being the bride of Christ, to enjoy him forever. Now, there's a doctrine you might read about, and I want you to understand what it means. If you've ever heard of this idea of progressive sanctification, I'm going to put this into context for us so we can understand what it means and what it doesn't mean. Okay, when you hear progressive sanctification, I want you to think of particular repentance. Okay? Remember, in particular repentance, as we grow and mature in our faith, things are revealed to us that we come to understand are sinful. We say, okay, my mind is changed to that thing. That's a sin. It's the same way with progressive sanctification. Think of it as the setting apart of this or that thing in our life. In contrast, there is an abuse of this idea of progressive sanctification, in particular repentance that connects it to our reason for our hope. We are and we have been sanctified completely already in Christ. We have been given to the Son. And we must be wary of teachers who would instruct us to find hope and assurance in our good works. Because just as our good works have done nothing to earn our salvation, our good works do nothing to keep our salvation, if we have faith in Christ, we can have assurance that Christ is faithful to us. Right? Christ is the rock of our hope. Christ and his righteousness is the rock upon which we build our castles. And the good that we do, if we try to find hope in it, is the sand that washes away. Your sanctification is found in Christ. As we grow and mature, we see things that we recognize as sinful. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the power of prayer, through the power of Scripture, through the power of accountability with our brothers and sisters in the church, we put those things to death. Sometimes they come back to life. Sins that you have not committed in years just show up one day, right? But God has given us things to do about that. God has established in Scripture the ways in which we kill sin. What did I say at the beginning? We're going to look at this through the lens of the local church, through the assembly, because that's who this was written to. All these things these methods, these means of grace that God has established for our good in Scripture happen in the local assembly. We hear the word taught. We pray together. We sing together. We take the Lord's table together. We have accountability with one another. We confess our sins. We share our struggles. And we shoulder the burden of this world together. 
through the power of Christ in us. And that is our hope. That Christ is faithful. That Christ has already finished the work that he said he would complete. Paul tells us that we are blameless because of it. That when we fail, we already have an advocate with the Father. That Christ has once and for all time satisfied God's wrath for his people. He has bought forgiveness for his people. We are no longer guilty. We are without blame. All because of Christ. And that is the center, the theme, the whole point, the foundation of our hope. The work of Christ in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. That we cannot earn it, cannot be bought because it's already been paid for. And we have been given to the Son. And we will see that promise fulfilled to enjoy him forever in glory. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, that through it we may see and understand the glory of Christ that we may grasp the work that he has done on our behalf. And that we may see your sovereign power. That we may understand your glory even just a little bit. And you have promised that one day we will understand it fully as we are glorified with Christ and enjoy eternal communion with you. And as we go, continue to teach us to love. Teach us to bring the love of Christ to our brothers and sisters, to our neighbors. Give us comfort and peace and joy that can only be found in him. We pray these things in his name. Amen.